learned so far, but there will be a nuance to the application that we make today. So I'd invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 40 and 41. And as we look at the title of the message and understand the theme, the subtitle there, God's providence or God's sovereignty behind the scenes guarantees our hope and our calling. God's sovereignty behind the scenes guarantees our hope and our calling. Now remember, we're talking about the life of Joseph. Um, and so as we think through, through that, we're going to have to ask and answer the question that we've raised in the text so far. How does the narrative of Joseph's life in chapters 40 and 41 highlight for us that God's sovereign providence develops hope and leads to ownership of our calling? Now, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that, and we're going to see the text answer it as we look at it today. So before we dive in and we read the text, and yes, I will read all of chapter 40 and chapter 41 today. We have time for it. Uh, I want us to be reminded that the rousing beauty of Joseph's story is revealed in the way we, the reader, are meant to see God's hand of providential working behind the scenes to orchestrate his will through the everyday mundane of life on this sin-cursed planet. Remember, Joseph's story, other than the very beginning of his story where we're told that God gives Joseph a dream, and we know during this era of time, Joseph was receiving direct communication from God. God spoke to holy men of God uh, through dreams and visions during that dispensation of time. And so Joseph was receiving communication from the Lord. He was understanding it, applying it to his life. And that communication as a 17-year-old was something that locked him in to his relationship with God, knowing God and trusting God throughout his entire life. And that communication, though, uh, began to be the only thing that he could cling to for hope and hold on to in his calling because he was about to go on the roller coaster of life. And so as we think about that, our theme in 2023 in Genesis has been sin destroys but God delivers. And so that theme is clearly true, is it not, in the ebb and flow of Joseph's life. And so there's more to Joseph's story, though. Through Joseph, we're meant to see not just that God, sin, sin destroys and God delivers, but we are meant to see that as God delivers, he delivers us with one hope and one calling. He delivers us for his purposes, and he sovereignly, providentially orchestrates all things in our lives for our good and his glory. Now, that is not to say that all things in our lives are enjoyable, or even that they come across as good in the moment. But as we've been careful to note thus far, throughout Scripture, we are reminded that it is a part of God's essential character and nature that he is defined as good. And, as we noted from Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, God is the definer of good. In other words, he himself is defined as good, and he gets to define what is good. And you say, well, preacher, how do you figure that? Well, remember in Genesis 1 and 2, God says something 17 times. Do you remember what it is? It is good. 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 And that wonderful revelry only gets interrupted on day six of creation when he makes Adam at the very beginning of the day. 
He leads his creation to Adam for Adam to name them. He sees this creation as male and female. And then he starts looking around. He's like, um, there's nobody at all or nothing at all coming up that looks anything like me. And so God says it's not good that man is alone. God, in his pedagogical way, is teaching Adam right away that God is the definer of good. And when he anesthetizes Adam in the first surgery and he creates out of Adam Eve from the rib of Adam, from Adam's side, presumably near his heart, right? Because, you know, women, our women are close to our hearts. Yes. Aw. Where's the aw? Come on. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, as uh, Presumably, that's what he does. As he does that, uh, he, God is then not only defined as good himself, he clarifies to Adam what is good. And aloneness is not good. So God created us for companionship. Now, that does not mean if you're sitting here today and you don't have a husband or don't have a wife, that... Um, somehow you're deficient or inferior. That's not at all. God has created the church under one hope and one calling. We are called God's body, God's family, God's husbandry, his vineyard, his field, his building. We are, uh, we are parts or components of the whole. And so therefore, the family of God functions together in unity and harmony under one hope and one calling, and in some essence, fulfilling that wonderful responsibility and the goodness of God that we are not in this life alone. That is why we need the community of faith. That is why we need the togetherness and the oneness of God's people. That is why God put local bodies of believers together in local communities with pastors and deacons so that we can serve one another and aid one another in this journey under one hope and one calling. And we see in the life of Joseph God's providential hand of leading to help us illustrate uh, Joseph is something more to the story. I've already alluded to the fact that Joseph is a type of Jesus, and we have seen that in the process. Um, Moses is also a type of Jesus as the deliverer. Moses is the narrator of this story. And we find in the story a lot of things that will direct us to our uh, our real deliverance, again, sin destroys, but God delivers. And we're going to see how God delivers his people through his seed. And his seed right now is Joseph. And that brings us all the way back to our text. So as we saw, uh, God funneled his promised seed through Jacob so he would deliver Jacob and all his descendants through the unlikely second youngest, Joseph. And he would culminate his work of deliverance by bringing hope to his people and a calling to be, as Peter puts it, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that we might proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are a people of God, who had obtained mercy, but now, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So if you're sitting here today and we're going to walk through the narrative of Joseph's story, we must remember that we are a network of believers connected to God's big story and big plan. We are that chosen generation. We who had not obtained mercy, we now have obtained mercy, and that mercy comes through the quintessential deliverer, Jesus Christ, the righteous Son of God, sovereign of the universe and Savior of the world. 
And so as we look at this priestly privilege that we as God's chosen people inherit, it's not to be taken lightly. We must, like Joseph, endure the trials of our everyday lives and trust in the providence of the God who sees our suffering and willingly directs our steps through the natural course of our lives for our good and his glory. Christian, today, let me remind you and let us remember that as believers, we must claim our calling and we must cling to our hope in our sovereign God's providential plan for our lives. Now, that is... That has been the emphasis of the first two messages in this series. And I want you to notice um, a subtle difference, a subtle difference in the way we're going to message that proposition here moving through this sermon, all right? And it occurs on this slide. So today, this continued theme of God's sovereign providence is even more obvious to the reader. And as we read chapters 40 and 41, it's going to hit us between the eyes like a ton of bricks. So as such, we're going to see that through the narrative in chapters 40 and 41, that notice the subtle switch here. As believers, we must cling to hope in our sovereign God's providential plan for our lives and claim our calling. So that claim of a calling to do more, to be more, to follow God, to trust God, to submit to God, to yield to God, to learn from God, to serve God, that is based on the theological foundation that God is our hope. God's sovereign providence in our life is trustworthy, and we are able to cling to the God who is good and who defines good. Even when the enemy is assaulting our minds, telling us that God isn't good and that our circumstances aren't good, and therefore because our circumstances are bad, God must be bad. Do you see the subtle lies of the enemy? If, they can, if he can slip in and deceive you into thinking that because your circumstances are bad, God must be bad, doesn't that sound like the subtle, slippery, sneaky serpent in the garden? Has God said putting doubt in the heart and mind of humans has always been the great deceiver, the, the fiery serpent, the Apollyon, the ruler of the darkness of this world. It's always been his MO, his modus operandi. Satan is the father of lies and the great deceiver. And when we buy into his deceit, we too become self-deceived. And so the life of Joseph, as we see it manifest, like I said, it's going to hit us between the eyes like a ton of bricks in chapters 40 and 41. When we see God's sovereign providence working in the life of Joseph, we are going to be challenged today that we must cling to our hope in our sovereign God's providential plan. And thus that cling must then transfer into action, the action of claiming our calling and doing something about it. And so as we look in the text today, I hope that we will help answer that, that most important question that I posed earlier. How does the narrative highlight for us that God's sovereign providence develops hope and leads to ownership of our calling? Now, there's three ways that we're going to see that today. And the first one um, is this. It's, and all of these are found, these are going to be summary points and summary subpoints from the entirety of chapters 40 and 41, which means that we have to listen well, and I am going to do the most important thing I'm going to do today and read the Bible 
And the most important thing I'm going to say is what the Bible says. So let's listen to the story as it unfolds. And I'll, I'll try to make it interesting, right? I try, won't be, I try not to be, you know, monotone and read the Bible like this. Okay, I'm not a Gregorian monk. So we'll do our best here to get through the narrative and make it enjoyable as we work through it. But remember this first point, and I want you to think about this first point as I read the whole story. Um, that God's sovereign providence works through our preparation. Okay, so we're going to see God's sovereign providence working through our preparation. Then we're going to see, secondly, God's sovereign providence working through our proclamation. So we're going to see our preparation. We're going to see our proclamation. Now, remember, these are homiletical points. So you could, if you wanted to make them exegetical points, you would say Jacob's preparation, or not Jacob, Joseph's preparation, Joseph's proclamation, but that doesn't preach well. That, that sounds like a history story. So we're not talking about history. We're talking about our story in the present and our response. And then the final thing we're going to see um, this morning is God's sovereign providence works through his pattern. Okay? So hopefully preparation, proclamation, and pattern will be easy to remember as we read through the story this morning. Okay? So as we do, I'll put the main point up on um, the first one. And let's go ahead and do a deep dive. Genesis chapter 40. And it came to pass after these things. Okay, what are these things? Joseph's in prison, right? In fact, back up a couple of verses. Um, ooh, verse, verse 20 of chapter 39. Then Joseph's master took him. This is Potiphar. Took him. He's the captain of Pharaoh's guard. He took him. He put him into prison. Why? Because he'd been falsely accused of trying to uh, rape his wife Potiphar, and I do say he was uh, he was falsely ac accused of that. Potiphar's wife accused him falsely, um, and he says, "Your servant did did to me after this." And this is his anger is aroused. He puts him in prison, a place. Notice where he where he gets put into prison. A place where the king's prisoners were confined. I want you to note, mark the word confined. And mark the word king's prisoners, because those that becomes important when we see God's pattern, our third point today. Okay? So notice, this is where he is. But the Lord, what we find here is, but the Lord was with Joseph. Now remember last time we were here, we noted eight times in this passage, Yahweh was with Joseph is mentioned. And the, and the name Yahweh isn't mentioned again until the end of the book in chapter 49 by Jacob when he provides a blessing on his sons. So this is a really important note. Yahweh, God, the covenant God of Israel, was with Joseph. Okay? So, the Lord was with Joseph, and he showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Chapter 40. And it came to pass after these things that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. So he put them into custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them. So they were in custody for a while. Then the butler and baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, there's that word again, had a dream. Both of them, each man's dream in one night, and each man's dream with its own interpretation. 
And Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them, and he saw that, that they were sad. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with them in, in the custody of the Lord's house, saying, why do, you, why do you look so sad today? And they said to him, we each have had a dream, and there's no interpreter of it. So Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph, and he said to him, Behold, in my dream a vine was before me, and in the vine were three branches, and it was as though it budded. It blossoms shot forth, and its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. But remember me when it is well with you, and please, please show kindness to me, and make mention of me to Pharaoh, and get me out of this house. For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, and also I had done nothing here that they should put me into the dungeon." When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I also it was in my dream, and there were three white baskets on my head, and the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. So Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. Now it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and the chief baker among the servants. Then he restored the chief butler in his butlership again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt. And they stood by the other cows on the bank of the river, and the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking cows, fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. He slept and dreamed a second time. And suddenly, seven heads of grain come up, came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed, it, it was a dream. But now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told him his dreams. But there was no one who could interpret them from Pharaoh. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my fault this day when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker. We each had a dream, and one night, he and I, each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, there was a young man, Hebrew man, 
with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard. And we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream, and it came to pass just as he interpreted for us. So it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him out of the dungeon, and he shaved, changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to him, Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I stood on the bank of the river. Suddenly seven cows came up out of the river, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then, behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such ugliness as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven the fat cows. When they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning. So I awoke. Also, I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good. Then, behold, seven heads withered thin and blighted by the east wind sprang up after them, and the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after are the seven years, and the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during that famine. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a man or such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Insomuch as God has shown you all of this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house. And all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand, and he put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in the garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain around his neck. 
And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried out before him, Bow the knee! So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, to man, uh, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah And he gave him as wife Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old before he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt, and he laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain, grain as the sand of the sea, until he stopped counting it, for it was immeasurable. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom uh, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore him. Joseph called the name, uh, the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, the famine was in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth. And Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph, to Egypt, to buy grain, because the famine was severe in all the land. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Father, we ask your, your wisdom and discernment as we walk through the text and we make application to our modern lives. We thank you for your providential work in our hearts already. We ask your grace as we minister to one another and listen to the word. May we listen and act. May we claim our calling today as a result of the text we've heard. In Jesus' name, amen. And so, as long as that was, we now have a wonderful backdrop for where we're going. As we uh, asked the question already, uh, how does the narrative at hand this morning highlight for us that God's sovereign providence develops hope and leads to ownership of our calling, we must note that God's sovereign providence works through our preparation. And as we look at verses 40 to 41, we're going to see uh, two facets of this preparation in the life of Joseph. First of all, there was a knowing and an understanding God. And as God sovereignly, providentially works through your preparation and my preparation, if we are open-minded and open-hearted and willing to, to see, to look backward, 2020 vision, they say, uh, when you look backward, uh, when we're willing to do that, we will, we will note that God is reaching out to us to know and understand him, just as he was in the life of Joseph. From our first introduction to Joseph, we find God communicating with him. Joseph listens and he responds to God, which continues as a pattern in his life that the text reveals. 
In fact, if we were to look at the text and go back through what we've just seen, uh, we'll note that, that God was the one who spoke to Joseph in two dreams, no less, early in his life as a 17-year-old. As the story progresses, we find chapter 40, uh, he, it's been uh, no less than 11 years since he was beaten and, and as a prince of Israel, thrown into a pit and then elevated uh, in, in Potiphar's house, right? And yet he was sold into prison. So he went from princeling to pit, back to fame, Potiphar's house, and now he's in prison. Eleven years have passed. He's, he's now whatever 17 plus 11 is, 28. And he's still in prison. And unless we think that his prison time is all fun and games, we've seen that he's been given authority in prison, which I'll comment on. We notice how the text says his life in prison is. Multiple times, what was the word the text used? Affliction, and he was confined. He was confined. He, he couldn't leave prison. In fact, we were, we were told early on in chapter 39, as we saw this introduction to prison, that he was actually thrown into stocks and bonds. He was given a neck collar that would, would chain him to wherever he was thrown when at the end of the day of his vizier service in prison, he would be chained by the neck to his prison cell yet again, night after night after night after night for years. Now, we have no idea how long it took for the caravan of Midian to make it, the Ishmaelites, to make it down to Egypt. We have no idea how long he served in Potiphar's house. Uh, maybe it was a year, maybe it was two years, maybe it was three years. But either way, three to four years, he's been in this prison for six or seven years at this point. Eleven years he's been in prison. He's been confined. But in all that time, we find... The, the argument of silence, to be sure, but we find that Joseph has been clinging to something. He's been clinging to his hope, and we find him claiming his calling. And you say, well, where do you see that, Pastor? Because multiple times, the narrator tells us the Lord was with Joseph. The narrator tells us that Joseph was blessed and given assignments, and his assignments thus blessed everybody around him. But ultimately, all we know of Joseph is what he says with his mouth. And when, in, by, by providence, uh, remember we were told he was thrown in a prison where? The king of Egypt's prisoners were kept. Do you think God did that by accident? Friends, sometimes we are imprisoned by our own sinful choices. Sometimes we are confined by the sinful choices of generations of others behind us. You know, I've, I've got a... I've got a um, an uncle by marriage who uh, converted to the Mormon faith. And so he has been uh, a, geneal a genealogical master in our family. He's been, he's been gathering genealogical evidence. He's still one of those old school Mormons that essentially thinks that you have to be um, Jewish and that you can be ethnically exclusive. Yes, Mormonism is one of the most racially heinous uh, religions out there. They excluded anybody of brown skin, regardless of their heritage, unless you could prove your Jewish heritage. Yes, you can look that up. That is a fact. And so he has, my, my cousin or my, my uncle by marriage has been going through the genealogies. And the truth is there's been nobody in our family for generations that knew God. Nobody. There is absolutely no reason that God in his sovereign mercy 
would reach down and save a sinner like me. I have no, I have no rich heritage in the gospel. There's no, there's no past history of, of servants preaching God's word in my family life. I don't know why he chose me, but he did. Joseph was chosen by God. But Joseph, like you and I, had a choice. Does he cling to what he knows about God? Does he compute what he understands about God's goodness? That God is good and that God gets to define good? Does he cling to that and does he understand it and apply it in his life? And what we see throughout the text is absolutely, irrefutably, yes. What does he say to, uh, to the, the butler and the baker when they tell him these disturbing dreams? He says, God is the one who is able to answer. But notice the subtle difference in the text of chapter 40. He not only says God is able, but what does he say? Tell me the dream. What is he implying? God communicates with me. I communicate with God. I know my God. I understand my God. And my, goodness, my God who is a good God despite my circumstances because God is good and he gets to define good, I will go to God on your behalf and I know God will give the interpretation. But remember when it happens, it's not me, it's God. You see, Joseph has developed the habit of knowing and understanding God. Let me ask you the question this morning. Are you in the habit of listening and responding to God? Are you in the habit right now of sitting down daily and seeking the Holy Spirit's guidance from His Word? Do you have a precious time of prayer and Bible study and devotion to God? It doesn't have to be hours. I mean, I'm teaching a class at IBCS this semester called Personal Evangelism Discipleship, and I'm teaching them a method of personal devotion. It is not the method. It's not the only method. There's hundreds of thousands. There's probably millions of methods because there's millions of, of Christians out there that have their own method. I'm not even presumptively saying it's the best method, but it is a method to teach them to take the Word of God, listen to the Word of God as the Spirit, Spirit presses it on them, paraphrase it, Repeat it and claim a phrase. Now that I know this about God, myself, my sin, or my circumstances, or something else, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I desire, fill in an action verb, to do, to be, to think, to serve, to love, to live, to pray, to give. You fill in the action verb based on the information I've received. Do you know how long that takes in your personal devotions? Five to seven minutes. It doesn't take long for you to take from God's word what he's communicating to you, prayerfully seek for understanding of it, and then to take a value that is actualized, not aspired values. I desire to be good today. Well, you're going to biff that one because there are none good, not even one, right? Yeah, we, get, we get so aspirational with the things that we think we're going to do for God, right? I desire to be a better prayer warrior, but then I'm not going to pray. In other words, we, we've, got to, we've got to take from God's word and stop saying these aspirational things and actually actualize them. Instead of saying, I desire to be good today, <laughs> I desire to reflect God's goodness by saying kind, a kind word to so-and-so today. Maybe it's my spouse. Maybe it's my kids. Maybe it's my employer who's 
Maybe like the employers in Joseph's life, not so good, right? I, you're my employer, so you're all, you're all wonderful. So that's not the point. Uh, the, the idea here then is, of course, I want to take that aspired value and actualize it. So if you, are, you and I are not in the habit of listening to and responding to God, you and I might miss God's best plan and all the blessings it brings. God is not in the business of forcing us to do things. God is lovingly, patiently shepherding us in his mercy and grace that we do not deserve. And he is guiding us. He's right there beside us. And he is begging us, will you know and understand me today? Now, we don't have the disadvantage that Joseph had. And yes, I do mean disadvantage. We say, what do you mean, preacher? He spoke to him in dreams. Yeah, you know how vague dreams are? I had a dream that I still remember as a 12-year-old. It's the only nightmare I remember. I was in my parents' Astro van while my mom of the pretty much every day of her life was shopping somewhere. And I was sitting in the front seat of my mom's our Astro van, uh, Chevy Astro. By the way, I love that van. It was an awesome van. Anyway, we were in the, we were in the front seat. And uh, for some reason, I guess I should have I patented this idea. But all of a sudden, there was a TV screen inside the inside the van on the dashboard, you know? I mean, it was a touch screen too. I should have patented that. You know, I could have been a quibillion, gazillion Googleplex air, right? And because everybody's got those in their cars now. Uh, and, and for whatever reason, there was a TV show running and I was watching it in my dream and, uh, and then, and then the, the, the commercial would come on. And they was, the, the, I don't remember what the TV show was, but the commercial was terrifying. It was a commercial for an upcoming, you know, TV show where there was this like ghastly looking, okay, you're gonna make fun of me, eggplant monster, okay? Eggplant was one of my least favorite foods that my mom made, and for whatever reason, there was an eggplant monster. And after, after, the, after the commercial break, and this was happening over and over again in my dream, after the commercial break one time, they, you know, it was, it would, the, the thing would, you know, it was a little snapshot of the show, and the eggplant monster would, would, would end in this terrifying pose with, a, with like a tentacle out and you know, sharp razor teeth, and it would freeze and then it would go on to the show, right? Well, after that, after that one of those commercial breaks, all of a sudden, the tentacle was sticking out of the TV screen. And I, of course, was like, no, no, that, that didn't happen. And uh, you know, I'm dreaming, I'm watching the show, and sure enough, the commercial comes on, and I'm kind of scooching away in the front seat, kind of hiding from it. And sure enough, the commercial, and then it ends in this terrifying pose, and the tentacle comes out, and this time it grabs my leg, and it pulls me toward the screen, and I find myself kicking and screaming and yelling, and like hacking at this thing, and I woke up in my bed. I was literally flipped upside down, kicking the headboard of my bed, and it was the, absolutely the most terrifying dream. Now, who can interpret that for me? What did that mean to 12-year-old Ryan? Don't eat eggplant. Well, that's pretty much how I applied it for like five years. I was terrified of eggplants. Are you tracking with me? We have an advantage Joseph doesn't have. We have the 66 sealed, signed, and delivered books inerrantly, infallibly inspired, given with God's instructions for us to know him and understand him and love him. And we put it on the shelf after Sunday. And we grab it and go, oh, I, I can't bring it with dust to church. I don't want my fingerprints. I'm going to just tell I didn't take it off my shelf this week. Right? We, we can't do that, right? Here we must understand God wants us to know him. In fact, this is part of God's sovereign plan for our life. God has sovereignly planned through his providence to work through our preparation. 
And part of our preparation is us knowing and understanding God. But the text teaches us even more. God is also preparing us by growing us in stewardship. Now, I almost use the word management because that's more modern. Uh, but I like the word stewardship. It's pretty loaded, and it's an ancient word. In fact, a household steward was indeed a manager who was entrusted with everything in the household. By the time the New Testament rolled around, oftentimes that household manager or steward of the household was even entrusted with the children in the home and their education. So he, he or she would be the schoolmaster or would bring them to a school, if it was in a Jewish household, you know, Hillel or uh, Shilal or whatever. Uh, but the point here is this, there was nothing in the household not under the steward's purview except the husband and wife and their own personal relationship. And in much the same way, we find Joseph being prepared as a steward. Now, think with me here. In Joseph's preparation, he started out, how do we get introduced to Joseph? He's 17, you know, pock-faced, pimply-faced, bad breath, braces. No, I'm kidding. He's none of those. I don't, we don't know. Actually, in fact, we we're told he's super-duper handsome, like, you know, broad shoulders, you know, V-waist, you know, big, thick thighs. You know, this is this, you know, awesome, amazing. I'm kidding. We, we made the joke about Giga Chad last week, and that just made everybody lose it. So we weren't going to go Giga Chad route again this week. But uh, anyway, Joseph was a looker. But what we find here uh, in Joseph's original introduction is Joseph is clothed with a coat of many colors. And as, as I told you what that was, that was a recognition from the surrounding society that Joseph was the one who was going to inherit everything from his father's house. But there's a little problem here. As a 17-year-old, Joseph has zero life experience. His brothers, many of them, are, are 12 and 13 years his elder, Right? And some of them are pretty bad dudes. They uh, tricked an entire city into getting circumcised. Then on day three, when everybody was uh, pretty messed up, they go in with swords and they slaughter all the men, steal all their women and children and their personal belongings, and think that that's all, that's all cool. No big deal. No bad ramifications from that. Pretty bad dudes. And this is the group of guys that Joseph is going up to and saying, Hey guys, guess what? I'm a team. You're going to bow down and worship me. Good idea, right? It's no wonder they take Joseph, strip him of his coat of many colors, beat him to a bloody pulp, throw him in a pit, and then uh, surmise what death they're going to give him until the brother, you know, one of the brothers, Reuben, steps in and says, don't kill him. And Judas says, hey, let's make money off of him. So he starts out as having responsibility without experience. But here, what is the first thing that happens when he gets sold into slavery? He gets bought by the captain of Pharaoh's guard, and all of a sudden, within a short time, Joseph is taking his actual rightful responsibility and is turning it into real practical stewardship. And then what happens after he gets wrongfully accused? He goes from, you know, Pharaoh's second-in-command or Pharaoh's guard's house back to the prison. Well, guess what? In prison. He gets put in stewardship and management. He just has a collar, gold collar around his neck that has a chain hook on it. And he's still confined. But he's still growing in stewardship. Now, I want to make some application of that this morning. When you and I recognize that our gifts and talents are from the Lord, we are to develop them with our future in mind. 
We're actually planning to be a tool fit for the master's use. Listen, young men, young women, middle-aged men, retired senior saints, that you're free to now serve God. Don't minimize the, the stewardship and management responsibilities that God has trained you and refined you in and equipped you for, and don't use them for your own selfish vain glory. Use them for God's glory. I promise you, you will not get to the end of your life having served God with all of your heart, soul, and mind and say, you know, I wish I had fill in the blank with your bucket list of entertainment ideas. No, in fact, I think all of us are going to get to the end of our lives and say, and I wish I had not been so fixated on that stupid entertainment thing, that stupid self-absorbed way to use my time, talent, and treasure. Man, I wish I had done more for God. I wish I had shared the gospel more. I wish I could bring more souls into the kingdom. But no, I wasted my life. I wasted my time. Friends, Joseph is a beautiful illustration that how in his confinement he knew and understood God. As he walked with God, he applied the management and the stewardship responsibilities of his life right where he was. He wasn't looking for greener pastures. He wasn't making excuses. Well, you know, if Potiphar would just, you know, give me more goods, I would be a better steward. No. He understood he was right where he was by the grace and mercy and providence of God. Friends, don't waste your life. Don't use your time, talent, and treasure, the tools that God has given you, to steward for selfish ambition or vainglory. Use it for God's glory. Grow in your stewardship. Because God's sovereign providence works through our preparation. Now, I don't know where you are in your life. I don't know what baggage you bring today. I don't even know who's speaking into your life. Only God does. I hope, you know, the word of God and your pastor and your local church here are speaking into your life. But I also know that we only meet for three hours a week. There's 165 other hours where other people and other things are speaking into your life and vying for your time and your treasure. And maybe there's people that are like Peter. Maybe they're well-meaning people, right? Right? Peter's the chief disciple of Jesus. Jesus just says to them, hey, I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die vicariously for you so that you can live for me eternally. And Peter's like, no, that's not happening, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Now, was, was Peter satanic? No, but Peter's counsel was satanic. And sometimes God can use carnal but well-meaning, claim to be believers and maybe are believers that speak lies into your life. And you need to be become a discerner of truth. You need to steward the providence of God in your life. You need to know and understand God so that you can weed through the lies of this world and listen to the Spirit of God as He challenges you from His Word. It's so important, and we have it all here. It's available. I don't know about you, but I have it on every digital device, and it talks to me every day. I just press play, and I can hear it. I can hear the word over and over again. I can pause it. I can highlight it. You know, if you don't have a, a Bible app or some kind of listening app for the Word of God, in addition to your print copy, I would encourage you to download one. 
and, and listen to it in multiple translations so that you don't get confused with antiquated language or you don't misunderstand God's truth. Listen to it in both. Read it in both. See, God's sovereign providence works through our preparation. But there's a second area where God's sovereign providence works. Here in the text, we find that God's sovereign providence works through our proclamation. And I'm not going to belabor this point this morning because I spent a lot of time already talking about it. But what we find is Joseph began having, having, to, having known and understand, understanding, boy, let me, let me reset. Having grown in his knowledge and understanding of God, Joseph has begun to steward the time, talent, and treasure that God has given him. He has recognized that God is good and he gets to define good and that God's sovereign providence works in my life for my good even when the circumstances decry otherwise. He's begun to learn that. And so, therefore, what does he proclaim? He proclaims God's purpose. And friends, sometimes... Uh, you know, when we are dealt lemons in life, we got to get the lemon pressed out and start making lemonade. Because God has put us right where we are for a purpose for such a time as this. And we must proclaim God's purpose. Joseph makes it clear to everyone who will listen that it is God who interprets dreams. God is the great communicator. Joseph also understands that he can function as God's ambassador. And his faith in God can be a tool to bless others. In fact, uh, if you, if, we don't have time to go there, but you know the famous passage in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. You uh, uh, who are new creations in Christ, behold, old things are passing away. All things are becoming, or old things have passed away. All things are becoming new. In that very same context, God says that we are reconciled to him, that is, we are brought together as a offending party back to God. We are reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. So now that we are in Christ, God wants us to reconcile others to him through us and Jesus. Therefore, Paul says that our mission, our, our claim, our purpose must be to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. You see, Joseph proclaimed God's purpose. Joseph knew he was an ambassador for Yahweh. I think it's very interesting that he identifies himself to the butler and baker as from the land of the Hebrews. Now, we're going to learn at the end of Genesis that there's only 70 people that show up in Egypt. Are you tracking with me? 70 Hebrews come from the land of Canaan. But in Joseph's mind, it's the land of the Hebrews. It's not the land of the Canaanites. It's the land of the Hebrews. Why? Because God has already ordained and purposed that that will be Abraham's inheritance uh, as much as, and his people will be as many as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. So as far as he's concerned, those 70 people represent the land of the Hebrews. You see, sometimes we have to claim God's purposes that are not yet fulfilled in our lives. Sometimes we have to note that God is working all things for good and my lemons are turning into lemonade because God is doing a work in my life. And so let me ask you this question. Are you always pointing others to Jesus? Or are you living for yourself and your own ambitions? Are you a self-promoter or a God-promoter? 
Now, that doesn't mean you abandon your job. <laughs> um, you know, if you're at work, please be appropriate at work. Don't, don't steal your boss's time, uh, but use the time in a strategic way if presented the opportunities to present the gospel. I'll give you an illustration. Uh, my wife and I prayed for three years. What, what will she do? She wanted to, to do something outside of the church to have the opportunity to be salt and light in our community um, after the kids were out of the house. And this was a prayer for us, and we supported it. We prayed for it together. We had to talk about it. It took us three years to figure out what that's going to look like. And now she's working at a charter school uh, as a third, fourth, and fifth grade music teacher. And you know what God has done? She has a morning duty that she doesn't particularly care for. Don't tell her I said that. Uh, it's a morning duty that she has to get there. She's there before any of the students, so she has to get there super early. She has to put out all the cone, all these really heavy cones. They're like the giant ones, and we're talking about my wife, okay? So there's like 30 of them, so it's like, you know, it's pretty, they're, they're a couple pounds a piece, so it's like 50 pounds of cones that she has to put out. So when the students come into the playground, they know where to put their backpacks, and they know where to line up to go into the classroom in the morning. But you know what God has done? God has providentially put a coworker there who came from a, 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 an abusive background, from a closed Muslim country. To escape that Muslim country, she had to cross the globe, get married to an American, move to Hong Kong, and then eventually come to the US. And she has been asking my wife about God. She proclaims to be irreligious, but comes from an abusive background. Now you tell me, how on earth could she have orchestrated a woman who was born on the other side of the globe, who came through Indonesia to Hong Kong to America, who would be on the same basketball court at the same time in Goodyear, Buckeye, Arizona, every single morning? You see, God sovereignly, providentially works all things in our life for good. But that good is so that we will proclaim his purpose. Wherever God puts you tomorrow in your daily grind, know that you're there for a purpose. Even if that purpose includes a flat tire on the way to work, God forbid, or an accident, or you fill in the blank, the trials that, that just generally come into our lives, those are meant for a purpose so that we can be proclaimers of God's truth. But not only does God sovereignly, providentially work uh, through our proclamation in, uh, in that we proclaim God's promises, but we also must recognize God's providence. This comes in the process of recognizing God's providence. And so in the midst of Joseph's career as vizier of Egypt, God blesses him with a wife and sons. By the way, I think it's really interesting. What does, what does Pharaoh put around Joseph's neck? A gold chain. What did Joseph wear for seven years in prison? Probably an iron collar around his neck. Now, I had to research this a little bit because the Hebrew words are similar. And what I found is going back in way ancient history, you have massive record of actual gold viziers of, of Egypt and world, foreign world powers being given actually golden collars or golden chains, which, by the way, is probably the reason why we, we men sometimes ordain ourselves or, or ordain, decorate, uh, uh, decorate ourselves with, with a gold or a silver chain because it is a, it's a sign of status, you know, that, that we've just sort of passed on through the generations. But he goes from the chain of a prisoner to the chain of Pharaoh, the vizier. And the point here 
is what does Joseph do with that authority? He doesn't use it for his own glory. He recognizes God's providence. And you say, well, how do I know that? How do you know that, preacher? Well, what does he name his boys? Now, he names the first one Manasseh. Um, it, it is a disputed name, to be sure. But generally, and, and for the most part, a couple of commentators uh, and Hebrew scholars that I noted, um, I believe the Manasseh primarily means God has spoken and God lives. What are the two lies that the generation that we live in tells us? God is dead, and he doesn't speak, and he doesn't care about you. What does Joseph say? <laughs> God speaks, and he is very much alive. That's how he names his son. You see, Joseph didn't just uh, learn to be a proclaimer of God. He learned to recognize God's providence in his life. When he was dealt lemons, he made some lemonade, and it was the best lemonade on planet Earth. <laughs> Not only does he name his son, uh, God has spoken and God lives, but the second one he names fruitful. Fruitful. He knows that God's blessings come to those who providentially submit to his plan. And he knows that that blessing may not be evident in the moment. It might be a far greater future. And like his great-grandfather Abraham, Joseph no doubt was looking for a city whose builder and maker was the Lord. So how about you, brother and sister? Do you take the time to recognize God's providence in your life? even when others use you despitefully for their own benefit. But God means it for your good and for his glory. Are you willing to acknowledge God even in this? Joseph was. We must. There's a third and final point this morning, and that is God's sovereign providence works through his pattern. Now, throughout the story, God communicates and he comforts Joseph. Joseph has a choice to listen or not. So what we see in God's sovereign providence working through his pattern, the first pattern is this, God communicates to you. God communicates to you. If you are a follower of God through the person of Jesus, that is, you've repented of your sins and you've turned from your sin by faith in repentance to Jesus alone, and you are now a follower of God, a child of God, then God communicates to you. The very first thing he's done is he's given you the Holy Spirit. You literally have the third person of the Trinity indwelling you uh, who has the ability to communicate through his word to your heart. The Holy Spirit is the agent of spiritual change in your life. And the Holy Spirit uses the tool of change, which is the word of God. And the agent of change takes the tool of change and he conforms our hearts to be more and more like Jesus. And by heart, you know what I've always done. When I say heart, I mean our mind. In other words... He, he takes our thoughts and he shapes our thoughts so that when the lies of the world that get poured in 165 hours a week and the three hours a week that we're together as God's people don't offset those 165 hours that we're outside of the God's people, right? When those 165 hours of onslaught against your mind come, you must understand God has given me the tools to say no to sin to say no to the lies of the enemy, to say no to those who are despitefully using me, to say no to the Peters who at the moment are being filled with Satan and not with the Spirit, to say no to the things that are anti-God and against his providence and purpose for my life. But how am I knowing that? How am I going to do that? Only when I'm walking providentially with God. Only when I'm, I'm having that daily 
conversation with the Lord. Only when I'm filling my thoughts with God's thoughts can I rebut the, the lies of this world. You see, God sovereignly providence, providentially works through his pattern. And his first pattern in your life and my life is that God communicates to you. He has communicated to you and I through the Holy Spirit and through his word. But guess what the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 says? God, who in various times, in various ways, in times past, has spoken through the fathers and the prophets, has in these last days spoken through his Son. You see, God hasn't only just given you the Holy Spirit, but he has given you his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, friend, when you take Christ as your Lord and Savior, you step into an eternal hope and an eternal future and an eternal blessing and eternal inheritance and eternal joy and eternal reward that I has not seen, neither has ear heard, nor has it even entered into the imaginations and the thoughts of man, the things that God has prepared for you. So don't buy into the lie that you need something or someone else in this world. We just need Jesus. Amen. There's nothing this world has to offer. This story is penned by Moses. Hebrews tells us Moses was not willing to accept the temporary pleasures of Egypt, but rather he gave it up for the future with God's people. Now, we know the rest of the story. The future wasn't great. How would you like, to, as a manager at work, to have 40 years of grumbling employees? 40 years, day in and day out. <laughs> and, uh, and how would you like it if you're, what, how, how would you respond if in that 40-year process of listening to grumbling and complainers, your boss, the CEO of the company, comes to you and he's like, hey, you want me to fire all these people and uh, just, you know, start over with you? You'd all be like, oh, yes, absolutely. Let us clean house, right? But Moses is like, no, God, that would ruin your reputation among the nations. You see, God communicates through you. And so our generation has the completed, revealed word of God. We must choose to listen to God or not. Our entire destiny and our eternal destiny and our family heritage lies in the balance. As believers, we must cling to hope in our sovereign God's providential plan for our lives, and we must claim our calling. We are in Christ, for God's sake, ambassadors who are aiding the reconciliatory ministry of the Holy Spirit, of Jesus Christ, as we are tools, we're channels of God's blessing in others' lives. Are you a channel of blessing or are you a channel of burden? Because God wants to use you as a channel of blessing. But if we let the world's lies slip into our minds, we can be a channel of burden. We can be Peter's. Turn with me to one passage and I'm almost done. James, we're studying James in our men's uh, breakfast fellowship. And we're studying James in the youth group. Notice what James says in chapter 4. Speaking to brothers and sisters in the church. Where do wars and fights come from among you? They come from your bad leadership. Your pastors and deacons in your church, they're awful. They just aren't leading the church properly. 
If we had better pastors and better deacons, better preaching, better teaching, better programs, better events and better activities, then our church would be better. It's the pastors and deacons' fault. And those deacons, let me tell you, do they not come from... Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. I give you an air five this morning. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. Now, I don't think he's talking about actual murders in, the, in, the, in Jerusalem church. Maybe he is, but I think he's literally thinking of what Jesus said. If you hate your brother in your heart, you have committed murder. How many churches have we been to where there's nothing but hate and spite getting flung like refuse across the room? Little gossip here about so-and-so. Did you hear about this? Did a little slander about, well, I heard so-and-so. There was no base to that claim. And all of a sudden, there's wars and strifes, and there's disputing, and there's problems. And whose fault is it? Well, it's a horrible fill-in-the-blank. It's our nursery coordinator. I picked on her because she's one of the sweetest people on planet Earth. Obviously, it's not our North. But you're following me, right? You can see how easily when we have a desire to be a consumer, we walk into the church and we say, I'm going to this church because of what this church will give me. And when the church stops giving me what I want, then I'm going to move to another church that will give me what I want. And ultimately, uh, it's real easy to go like this. Instead of going like this, we go like this. It's everybody else's fault that me as a consumer is not satisfied. If you church would just satisfy me, if more people would just talk to me, would just invite me to lunch, have a Bible study with, if more people would do more for me, then I would like my church better. Would you though? Because guess what? You're going to find selfish people just like me, just like you. We're all selfish. We're all self-centered. We all have lust and lust for pleasure. And we're all everywhere. And the more, the more places we go, the more people we're going to find like that because we're all sinners saved by grace. And we just need God to help continue to graciously work in our hearts from the pastor down. We need the Holy Spirit to help us. And later on he'll say, because... Therefore, to not have wars and strifes among you, to, to not murder and covenant obtain, fight and war, to not have prayers that are unanswered, you, you receive, you do not receive because you don't ask, and when you ask, you ask amiss to consume it on your own lusts. We're adulterers and adulteresses. We say we love God, but we actually love the pleasures of ourselves and our own wicked desires. And he says, if you're actually, you say you're a friend of God, but you're, you actually are in love with all your stuff and your own pleasures and your own lusts, then you're not God's friend. You're actually acting like an enemy, he says. But he ends verse, thank God he ends in verse 6. <laughs> but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What's his application? Therefore, submit to God. Friends, God is equipping you. God is communicating to you. God loves you. And what does God say the greatest identifier of any Christian should be? Love for one another and obedience to Jesus. In fact, what does the author of Hebrews say should be the purpose of our gathering regularly? Hebrews 10, 24, we gather together. Don't forsake the gathering yourselves as such is the manner of some, but... Instead, get together to provoke, to poke and prod one another to love and good works. And what is the essential good work? Obedience to God. Love others, love God, and obey. And guess what? where that happens? 
in our gathering together as a church, as God's people. We provoke one another to love and good works because the day of the Lord is coming. This is the challenge for us. So we have a choice, don't we? Are we going to be uh, the kind of people that are conduits of blessing? Or are we going to be the kind of people that are conduits of cursing? Are we going to be Peters filled with Satan? Or are we going to be Peters who are now able and equipped to feed Jesus' sheep? What do you and I want to be? What does Crossroad want to be? In 2024, we know there's one hope and one calling. And my prayer, Pastor Stephen and I's prayers, we've poured over each one of you in prayer and love and solidarity as we thought, think of you regularly and you're on our regular prayer list. We want this church to be a church that is united under the banner of God's love, God's purposes for your life, and obedience to his word. The final providential way that we see um, God's sovereignty working through his pattern is not only God communicating to you, but God equipping you. And so let me close with this illustration. Do you look at the difficult circumstances of your life and do you buck against God's providence? I know some of you brothers and sisters are, you've come from really rough backgrounds. Some of you are carrying a load of real, real hurt. And, I, and I'm not minimizing it at all. Some of it is hurt that's been brought on you and some of it is hurt just from life choices that are now consequential. But let me tell you, God is equipping us to do his work. The lemons of life can be lemonade in God's plan. We must be faithful in our stewardship, awaiting his reward. And so in conclusion, Joseph's life teaches us that life is full of inequities and unfairnesses and tragedies. But it also teaches us that we have a great God who works amidst the rich compost of human life to do his will. We must understand that as God's children, we are called to give everything to him, even the bitter things of the past. As believers, we have been set free from the bondage of sin and death. And so, here is reality. Real life is unfair. Real life deals out many inequities. Real life is filled with sin and sinners. Real wounds are everywhere. But the transcending eternal reality is that God is all-powerful and that his massive providence is at work in his children's behalf. Life brims with hope and optimism. Where are you in the process? Are you willing to be God's proclaimer? Are you willing to take the stewardship of your life now and let the master work it in such a way that you're useful. I'm going to close with this poem. It actually used to hang on my wall, and now it is um, getting ready to hang on my wall. It's a poem by Mary Brooks Welch. "'Twas battered and scarred. The auctioneer thought it hardly worth his while to waste his time on the old violin. But he held it up with a smile. "'What am I bid, good people?' he cried." Who starts the bidding for me? One dollar, one dollar, one dollar, do I hear two? Two dollars, who makes it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three. But no, from the room far back, a gray-bearded man came forward and picked up the bow. And wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings, 
He played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as the angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What now am I bidden for this old violin? And he held it aloft with its bow. One thousand, one thousand, do I hear two? Two thousand, who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, going and gone, he said. The audience cheered, but some of them cried. We just don't understand what changes it's worth. Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. Amen. And many a man or woman with life out of tune, all battered and bruised with hardship, is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going, going once, he's going twice. He's going, and he's almost gone, but the master comes. And the foolish crowd never quite understood the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. Friend, God loves you. God is good, and he is the definer of good. No matter what your circumstances are, let the master work. And friends, as we think of our application this morning, let us be reminded as I have said over and over again, as believers, we must cling to hope in our sovereign God's providential plan for our lives, and we must claim our calling. May we be ambassadors of love for one another and obedience to God's word today, tomorrow, next week, next month, in 2024, and until Jesus comes. Let's pray.